Hello, and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. Last time we talked a little bit about this crazy situation you have in the early church, in which for closing in on 250 years, to be a Christian meant to be persecuted. From at least AD 64 on, there were regional persecutions all over the Roman Empire, and these weren't like regional little persecutions where you might get some kind of like ticket for being a Christian. These were like the soldiers burst in and hauled everybody off to be killed, kind of persecutions, like pretty bad persecutions. But then in the third century, you have this crazy period in which there are these really intense, extreme empire-wide persecutions where thousands and tens of thousands and maybe hundreds of thousands of people are brutally killed for being Christian. And then all of a sudden, Constantine comes along, says, we're not doing that anymore, and Christianity is legal. And what's more, Christianity becomes kind of a hip thing to do. So you have this situation in which you have people who grew up literally risking their lives to go to church every Sunday, standing next to people in church who are like, I don't know if I really believe this stuff, but yeah, I'm willing to listen. I'm definitely going to go home and burn some incense to mercury to make sure my business goes well, but I'll, I'll hear this like new interesting religion out. And some people found this frustrating. Others, however, found it an opportunity. But to understand that opportunity, we have to go back a bit before this period. So where does monasticism come from? According to John Cassian, who's one of the chroniclers of early monasticism, monasticism comes from the Bible. So in Acts 4, we see all the apostles getting together to lead this life of prayer, this life of mission. They sell all their possessions. None of them have private property. They hold everything in common. And we're told that there are no poor people around because they take care of anybody who's poor. And for John Cassian, this is actually the origin of monasticism. It is this apostolic life. However, as the church grew and the church was reaching out to all sorts of people, the church made, in a sense, concessions to say, to be a Christian, you don't have to live this kind of life. This is just one way of being a Christian. But according to John Cassian, and he has this book called The Conferences, and this is in chapter 18 of The Conferences, according to John Cassian, that apostolic mode of life never stopped. People kept on doing it. And so by the third century, by the kind of like... 250s, we know that there are people doing this in Egypt. We know that there are people doing this in Palestine. At least a little bit later, we have evidence of people doing this in Turkey. We have evidence of people doing this in Syria. And they are basically selling everything they have, giving the money to the poor, and living in some sort of community or living as hermits. But one way or the other, just devoting their lives completely to prayer. It was being done, but it wasn't very popular. Until this guy named Anthony comes along. Anthony was born into an extremely wealthy family. They had 
everything. They had private jets, they had vacation homes, they had farms and fields and vineyards and apartment houses and uh, concrete manufacturing companies and tire stores. They, they just had a lot of stuff. And when Anthony is a young man, both his parents die. And he and his sister inherit this empire of wealth. And so Anthony's thinking to himself, what am I going to do with all this? Should I go into full-time philanthropy? Do I take over the family businesses and make these billions into more billions? Like, what am I supposed to do with my life? And he's a Christian. And one Sunday, circa AD 270-something, he is sitting in church. And the deacon gets up and he reads the gospel. And the gospel is the story of the rich young man. And Anthony's like, sounds familiar. And this rich man, young man comes up to Christ and says, uh, Lord, what, good teacher, what must I do uh, to be saved? And he says, you know, the commandments, honor your mother and father, don't murder, don't steal, keep the Sabbath. And he says, I've been doing all these things since I was a little kid. Like, I went next level. And Christ, we're told, looking at him, loved him and says, sell everything you have and come and follow me. And we're told that their young man went away downcast because he had very many possessions. But Anthony heard this gospel and he jumped up and he smacked himself in the head and he said, Eureka, I've found it. I know what I'm supposed to do with this incredible wealth that I've inherited. So he calls up the lawyers, he calls up the estate agents, he calls up the stewards and he says, sell everything, I'm moving. And they liquidate absolutely everything. They liquidate the house in Aspen, the private jet, all of the stuff that Anthony's family have, they, they turn into hard cash. He gives a little bit of it for the care of his sister, and then he takes the rest, these billions of dollars in gold, and he gives it to the poor. He shares everything he has with the poor, and he decides to walk out into the desert with nothing. And not only does he do that, he's walking out into the desert, but he's still wearing an Armani suit. And so he looks down, and on the ground are these old rags that a beggar has cast off. These are so bad that the beggar said, oh, I'm not wearing these anymore. These are disgusting. And so Anthony takes off his finery, his silk tunicle or whatever he has on, and he puts on these old, smelly beggar's rags, and he wanders off into the desert. And his goal in the desert is to find a hermit, specifically this guy, Paul the Hermit, because there's a legend that there is this Christian holy man living this life in the desert that is a life of a single-minded focus on God. And Anthony's like, that is the life I'm looking for. I got to know what this guy knows. Like, maybe he'll teach me his ways. Anthony finds this old man living in extremely harsh conditions in the desert. He has almost nothing. He has some dates and he has some water. So there's a date palm tree, lives on the dates, drinks the water, and lives on nothing else except prayer. His whole life is spent in prayer. He is totally focused on being in the presence of Christ, on knowing his own sin, on struggling against his own passions, and on worshiping God. This is his whole thing. So much so that when he sees Anthony coming, he's like, thanks, but no thanks. We don't want any. We're closed today. Get out of here. But Anthony is persistent. And eventually this guy, Paul of Thebes, takes on Anthony as his disciple. And Anthony learns from him. And they spend a lot of time just praying together. That's kind of what they do. 
Eventually, St. Paul the Hermit dies, and Anthony buries him, and now Anthony is just on his own out in the wilderness, at least for a while, because people start showing up. Like he searched for Paul, people start searching for Anthony. There's this rumor that there's this incredibly holy man out in the desert, and people want to learn from him. So over time, he allows people to come and speak to him. He'll pray with them. He'll begin to teach them. But he's really longing for solitude. So he lives there for 12 or 13 years, and eventually he decides to go way out into the desert. And he goes to this old abandoned Roman fortress. And it is a walled fortification. And the walls still stand. And he's like, all right, if soldiers can't get over these walls, then neither can disciples, which is just what I'm looking for. And he spends 20 years behind these walls. Sometimes food is thrown to him. Um, but sometimes he'll kind of shout over the wall to somebody. But disciples will come and come and come and bang on the gates of the fortress. And he's like, get lost. I, I'm here just trying to like work on myself. So please just give me some space. But over time, he's so holy that his, in a sense, his holiness is sort of radiating from this place, or at least his legend is radiating from this place. And so people start to build huts, little hermitages around this fortress. So after 20 years of isolation, he emerges. And we're told he didn't look, you know, a day over 15 years of isolation. He looked fantastic. He hadn't aged dramatically, even though he'd been leaving this incredibly ascetical, super hard life. And he starts to become the teacher of all these disciples. And we might say, well, good for Anthony. You know, I mean, he didn't have to deal with any of the cares of life. He got to have this basically 20-year retreat, just being out in beautiful countryside, living it up, no responsibilities, just doing his own thing. That's kind of our modern understanding of what it's like to be on a sort of retreat in the wilderness. But that would have nothing to do with an ancient understanding. So for us, nature can be a place of solace and beauty and peace and relaxation and tranquility. I'm going off to the country. I'm doing a writer's retreat. We're going to go spend the weekend at a cabin. We're going to Colorado for the summer. This is the language of extreme luxury. But in the ancient world, it was just the opposite. So the city was the place where there were walls, there were fortifications to keep people safe. There were water supplies, which were dependable. There were food supplies, which were dependable. In the desert, you got nothing. The desert, or just the wilderness anywhere, really, in the ancient world, was the place of roving brigands. There was no law in the desert. They used to do whatever they want to you. Steal your stuff, beat you up, leave you for dead, actually kill you. There would be no consequences for bandits because they were out in the desert. Who's going to stop them? This was the place of wild animals. Humans did not carry around blunderbusses and 22s and all sorts of like firearms that can kill wild animals. There were no elephant guns uh, in the third century desert. So if you happened upon a tiger, you were that tiger's dinner. That was it. That's all she wrote. And not only was the desert the place of highly likely to get killed kind of situations, the desert was also the place of chaos, of spiritual evil. There were no churches in the desert keeping the forces of evil at bay. The demons kind of reigned in the desert. Like the desert was a scary place 
it was creepy spiritually, and it was really dangerous physically. If you went out to the desert, there's a good chance you were not going to make it back. If the brigands didn't get you, the animals might. If the animals didn't get you, the lack of food and water might. The extreme scalding sun. I mean, there's just, there's no protection for a human being out in the desert. So A, these guys and gals that followed Anthony were not going on a nice, relaxing retreat. I heard one spiritual writer say that the way that ancients looked on the desert or the wilderness is kind of the way we might look on a very violent part of an inner city. Whether you're someone who's lived there for 20 years, whether you're somebody who just got off the wrong bus stop, like there is a high chance that you might be affected by gun violence or by just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Like there's just a lot of very difficult stuff that happens in some parts of some inner cities. And that kind of fear is exactly how ancient people saw the wilderness. You're going, where? Are you crazy? You're going to go walk out into the Nitrian Desert? Are you insane? Like, uh, So this is, this is where they were going, in quotation marks, on retreat. And then the retreat was not sleeping in every day and having three pleasant meals and maybe like catching up on your reading mystery novels. The life that they lived was insanely, ridiculously hard. Like, Anthony would not eat for days at a time. Anthony would stay up all night in vigils of prayer. He would sleep maybe an hour and then just get back to it. Nor was this sort of like blissed out Zen monk, oh, I'm just sort of communing with with everything which is interconnected. No, this was like focusing on how far you had fallen short of being the human being that Christ created you to be. They were really intent on staring their sin in the face, you know, really facing the ways in which they fell short of loving God with their heart and mind and soul and strength and loving their brothers and sisters as themselves. Like this is a really hard, really intense, physically punishing, spiritually agonizing way to live. And you might ask, why did anyone do it at all? And really, there's only one answer to this question. And that is the peace of Christ. Because after all this time in the desert, these early monks and nuns would come to this place of quiet. And within that quiet, they could really see the presence of Christ with them, inside them, walking with them, teaching them. They grew deeper and deeper and deeper in love with God. And the stories of these monks and nuns They're really all about how that peace and that love and that wisdom just radiated out from them. But the story of Anthony is a special one because it actually gets written down by this guy, Athanasius of Alexandria. Athanasius, who becomes the great Archbishop of Alexandria, big big player in the Council of Nicaea. Athanasius writes the biography of Anthony. And this becomes one of the ancient world's major, major bestsellers, really the first Christian bestseller. And this book, it was so influential that within like 15 years of its being written, it was already translated into Latin from Greek, which in which it was written, spreading all over the Latin West. And copies of this book have been found everywhere. They've been found in Palestine, they've been found in France, they've been found just all over the place. And if you look at monastic founder after monastic founder, and you ask them like, 
you know, what's your big influence? They're like, oh, Life of Anthony, obviously. You know, it's like this game changer. You know, you ask somebody in the 70s who plays guitar, like, when did you get started playing guitar? And they're like, Eric Clapton. You ask a rapper, like, what what made you start rapping? Notorious B.I.G. You ask a punk band, like, why are you playing punk? Wow, Minor Threat. We bought a Minor Threat record and it was over. We just started copying what they were doing. That was the life of Anthony. It was the guiding influence for all monasticism. So when St. Augustine has his conversion to Christianity, what he's thinking about is St. Anthony. He's thinking like, oh, you know, if only I could sort of like take the plunge and go in with both feet and really just give myself to the church. If only I could be like Anthony. You know, he is taking heaven by storm. If you were to ask St. Benedict, what, you know, what made you uh, get interested in this whole monasticism thing, right? The rule of Benedict, he'd say, oh, life of Anthony. It was life of Anthony that was the inspiration. And in fact, my style of monasticism is basically doing Anthony's style of monasticism for beginners. It's the easy road to this very hard path that Anthony was on. So it is the life of Anthony that inspires the whole church to start thinking broadly about this monastic life, which John Cassian says was around from the beginning, but was kind of on the down low. It was said of Anthony, Anthony is famous everywhere and marveled at by everyone and dearly missed by people who never saw him in Spain and Gaul, in Rome and Africa. Yet he spent his years concealed and sitting on a mountain. He spent 20 years without seeing a single person, and he became one of the greatest celebrities of his day. He had this huge impact on the church through the writings of Athanasius, but he also had a huge impact on the church from his one-on-one conversations with disciples. So there was the 12 or 13 year period where he was living um, in the dwelling of St. Paul the Hermit. And then he goes to the fortress for 20 years. He comes out and then he has disciples. He teaches. There are these, these young men and young women who come out into the desert and they learn from people like Anthony. And what they're there to do, in a sense, is to give up three things. So the first thing they give up is possessions. Like the apostles in Acts 4, they sell everything. And they they don't sell everything and then bring the proceeds to a monastery and all share in it together. They sell everything and give the money to the poor. That is stage one of becoming a monk or a nun in the ancient world. So you... You cash in your stocks and bonds, you put the car on uh, Craigslist or whatever, you sell the house, you make this giant pile of money selling every little thing you've got, all your books, all your shoes, everything, and then you go and toss that to the poor. You give away everything you have. You turn it into cash they can use, and you wander out like Anthony did into the desert with nothing. So the first thing you're taking on is poverty. The first thing you're giving up is money and possessions. And when you get to the desert, you've got a couple of things. Your necessary desert equipment. You have an outfit, like one set of beggar's rags. You have a bowl, and that will be what you drink water out of, what you eat your meals out of. That is like your bowl that you use for everything culinary. You have a pillow. That's your pillow at night. And it's also what you sit on during the day. And you have a sheepskin rug, like an actual skin of a dead sheep. And that's what you sleep under. 
and that's what you've got. You would probably find an abandoned hut, you might make a lean-to, you might live in a cave, but it's an extremely ascetical life. There's one possession that these early monks and nuns would argue over whether or not it is allowed to have, and that is a Bible. This was a scandalous thing, because in this era, books were incredibly expensive. Books were these huge luxury items. And the thinking was, according to one desert father, that if you have a Bible sitting in the window, or even just a copy of the Gospel of John, or a copy of Romans, or whatever it is, sitting in the window, you're going to spend all of your time wondering if there are any, like, bugs crawling on your Bible or if anybody's going to come by and snatch your Bible, or if it's going to fall out the window and get wet and get moldy. Like you're, you're going to be so worried about this object, this possession, that you're going to have no time for Christ. And it's going to become this thing which destroys your inner quiet, destroys your peace, destroys your focus on drawing close to God. There were those on the other hand who said, what are you talking about? It's a Bible. Like, this is the word of the Lord. This is the word of God. This is actually a really good thing to have in the desert. So there were two sides to that equation. Some people had Bibles. Most people didn't. Most people sold everything that they had, including extremely valuable objects like books. You know, we now think of a book as like a $2 trade paperback or whatever. But in this era, if you had a complete Bible, a complete codex of the Old and New Testament, I mean, that would be the worth the equivalent now of like hundreds of thousands of dollars, not because it's old or because it's valuable or something, but because that is a whole lot of dead calves that it took to make all the vellum to put that together. And then you have to pay a scribe to write the whole thing out. You have obviously ink expenses, quill expenses, and all that stuff. But books were a huge luxury thing. So it's sort of like to us to say, why wouldn't you want to have a Bible in the desert? Obviously, you should have that. To them, it would sound like, why wouldn't you want to have a Rolls Royce in the desert? Obviously, no monk can get by without a nice luxury driving experience. So, Bible, an object of some contention in terms of possessions, all the other stuff was standard. So, the first thing you're taking on is poverty. The second thing you're taking on is chastity. It is a life of battling against lust battling against lustful thoughts, battling against the obsession that uh, we have with sex as human beings. And the third thing that you're taking on is obedience. So you would wander out into the desert, and you would find the hut of a monk or a nun, and you would knock on the door, and you would say, Ama Synclectica, you know, I'm here, I'm wondering if you as a great nun of the desert would take me on as a disciple. And she would say, Maybe. We'll see. Why don't you go sit over in that cave for six days? Come back and we'll talk. And you would say, okay. And you would go and sit in the cave for six days. And after six days of being like, I'm here in the dark in a cave. Why am I doing this? You come back and say, okay, I did that. Uh, Can we talk now? And she'd say, yeah, go do it again for another three days. So you go do it again for three days and you'd come back and say, can I at least have like a word of wisdom? And she would say, like, uh, you know, in the beginning was the word. And you'd be like, okay, well, I guess I'll go focus on that for another three days. So you were living this life of total obedience. There was one young disciple who was given an old dead stick by a monk. And the monk said, now put this in the ground, dig it in really well, this old stick, and water it every day. And so the disciple's like, 
I hope I didn't pick a crazy monk. I hope this is a normal monk. But anyway, I'm going to do it because I'm obedient. So he sticks the stick in the ground and he waters it every day. And watering, this does not mean turning on the hose. This means like hiking three miles to the well, filling up this thing with water, hiking three miles back, carrying this heavy thing of water and pouring this on an old dead stick, being like, oh, I wish I had a drink of water. This is what he did every day. And he did this for the course of years and years and years. And eventually through this, he learned total obedience. He's like, whatever you say, I'm going to do. It doesn't have to make sense to me. In fact, it makes absolutely no sense to me. And then one day, like the rod of Aaron, the stick started to sprout. And it grew branches, and it grew roots, and it grew into this huge tree, which apparently was still in the Egyptian desert until like, I think it was like the 1890s, in which it was chopped down by a some folks who didn't like monasticism. So poverty, chastity, and obedience. These were the three qualities of the desert fathers and mothers. You were giving up power. You were giving up sex. You were giving up money and possessions. Not because any of those things are bad. In fact, those are all good things. You can do wonderful things with power. You know, if you have power, you can actually use it to change the world for the better. You can do incredible things with money. You can feed your family. You can start a children's hospital. You can do all kinds of, you can take a great vacation. You can do all sorts of wonderful things with money and possessions. Those are great things. Sex is a wonderful thing. It is unifying two people who love one another. They fall in love. They make this commitment. They bear children. It is this sort of seal of their commitment to one another and it's sort of beautiful thing. But these are also things that we pursue and we will sometimes put these lower goods over higher goods. So you might say, well, money's a good thing. I'm going to pursue it and I will do anything I have to to get money. You know, I'm going to get paid no matter what. And it doesn't matter who gets in my way, who I have to step on, what I have to crush. I'm going to get my money. And then you're putting a lower good over a higher good because you're like, I don't care about other people. I will destroy them to get money. And then you become a slave to money. So it becomes dangerous in that way. The same thing with power. I must have power. I must have the respect of others. I must have everyone like me. I must uh, win honor and glory and accolades and be famous, and I will do anything to get there. Another dangerous scenario in which you might put that quest for power over the good of happiness of another, safety of another, human life, whatever it is. And obviously, from sexual assault to the way that people use one another in mean-spirited ways and hurt one another. Sex can be a very dangerous idol. I mean, how many ways is sex not an idol? Sex sells, sex packages everything. Like, sex is this thing which totally possesses us as human beings. Um, Our culture is really, really, really sex-obsessed most of the time. So these three things, money, sex, and power, they're given up not because they themselves are bad, But sometimes in pursuit of them, we put lower goods above higher goods. What's more, there are these drives within us to pursue them. So when I am concerned with people liking me 
and my own popularity, people thinking that I'm smart or I'm funny or I'm good looking or I'm rich or I'm powerful or I'm the perfect American or I'm the perfect Japanese person, whatever it is that I'm concerned with and that I want to project onto the world, then I'm in a sense kind of a slave to that drive. Like I'm just thinking about getting people to like me all the time, or I'm even acting unconsciously hoping that they will like me. And it is this obsession that becomes like a slave driver kind of whipping me on and on and on. When I'm thinking about money all the time, money becomes my raison d'etre. Everything I do is about having more stuff, hanging on to what I've got, investing well, checking my stocks constantly, working harder so I can make more money and have this big sort of pile of security or goods or whatever it is. And I become a slave to money. I become a slave to power. I become a slave to sex. I'm not pursuing things that are fulfilling or joyous. I'm just like, I hear that whip crack and I gotta go. I gotta follow. And for the desert fathers and mothers, this slavery to money and sex and power was demonic. We are enslaved to these brutal masters that push us on and on and on. And when we are following them, when we are following their orders, we can't follow the orders of love. And God, his goal for us always is love because his nature is love. And we are commanded to love him with our heart and mind and soul and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so for the desert fathers and mothers, quieting those passions, saying no to those passions, stopping oneself from being totally subsumed and enslaved to those passions was the route to love. And yet we might say as modern people, weren't they still living kind of a selfish life? Weren't they just kind of like working on themselves and not caring about the world? They weren't. And next time we'll dive deep into the thought of the desert fathers and mothers and see what treasure trove of wisdom and joy and goodness came out of this life in the desert. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I look forward to being with you next time.